If you would, let's read together from God's Word. You'll find the text uh, printed in your notes, uh, but also on the screen. After we finish reading, if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We will look at some passages outside of what we're reading. Let's read together from God's Word. Now, in giving the following instruction, do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for at the meal each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. This is God's Word. This week I came across an article uh, entitled, uh, 25% of men are dating aspirationally. That sort of caught my attention, so I looked a little further into it, and it was a study of online uh, dating. And now that there are so many more people involved, uh, they are now, uh, this, this research company was beginning to track some data uh, to test some of the things that uh, we sort of have assumed about how dating works. Now, uh, you might know this, but that, that the truth is that a lot of, uh, a lot of men in particular will, uh, will date or try to date someone who is out of their league. Uh, maybe some of you have, uh, have attempted this or experienced this. I know a long time ago for some of you, but you can think back to uh, trying to get a date with someone out of your league. Well, now there is scientific evidence to prove that 25% of men are attempting to date someone out of their league. And we can look at uh, this research to show it. Uh, the, the way this works is uh, those, uh, those people, those men and women on this website, were, were given desirability rankings uh, based on uh, whether or not they uh, received a reply if they attempted to start a relationship. And, uh, and so, that if, so, for instance, if someone was, was higher on the desirability scale, they were getting lots of replies or, uh, to, their, uh, to their communications, uh, and someone on the lower end of the scale uh, attempted to communicate with them, something would happen to the person on the higher end. If, if they replied to someone who was lower than them, their desirability ranking would go down, right? You probably know how this works if you uh, um, were dating someone who was below your league. And then uh, the same thing, would, something else would happen for the person on the, uh, on the lower end. If, if they attempted communication with someone above them and that person responded, then their desirability scale would go up. Makes sense, right? Now, I know that you don't really care about uh, this online dating thing, but uh, as I was reading this, I thought, you know, I, I really should apologize to Christy because I am sure that when uh, I asked her out and we started dating, her desirability scale just plummeted. Um, it was probably not good for, uh, for her. Well, I bring that up only to say that when we look at this particular passage that we just, we just read, 
There's something similar happening in, in this context. It's not about dating, but it is very much about how the society was structured at the time. In, in this particular case, we're, we're seeing a, a church in, uh, in ancient Rome or in the, in, the, in the Roman countries, and they were, well, they were experiencing a kind of division. Now, that's the, the word that's used there. When you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Uh, the word in Greek is the word that would normally be translated schism. But the translators recognize this was not a doctrinal issue. They weren't splitting over theology. This was a church that was splitting over, well, social relationships. And here's how this would work. They were, they were gathering for what we, we know would be the Lord's Supper. We, they didn't do it the way that we do it. They didn't have a big room like this where they uh, passed trays with, uh, with little pieces of bread and, uh, and little cups. That wasn't how they did it. They were just meeting usually in the largest house available to them. Uh, so a, a wealthy person would become a Christian and then would host the church at their house. But the house was structured, as we know from archaeology, in some particular ways. There was a, an inner dining room. It was called the triclinium. And this is where the owner of the house would gather, and he would bring the most wealthy or influential people into the triclinium. Now, this would only seat between 9 and 12 people. It's not very big. But they had couches and furniture, and the servants would bring the food in and really take care of these, uh, these people in the triclinium. Other guests who were invited to the gathering would be expected to stay outside in the impluvium. This was like an atrium with a, a big pool in the middle to catch rainwater. And all the people had to kind of stand around on the outside because the impluvium didn't have a lot of furniture. It was pretty bare, so you'd sit on the floor in the stone. And you also didn't get served like the people in the dining room. You were brought the, the leftovers, and you had to wait till they were done. But we also know that particularly in these ancient churches, the gatherings began to get pretty large. Uh, it was not nine people or even 30 or 40 people. Uh, they could have uh, hundreds of people, 100 people. And so on the outside, there was a courtyard. And you could, you could have about 100 people out in the courtyard of this Roman house. And uh, everybody else would be expected to kind of hang out out in the courtyard. And so what, what appears to be happening here is the Apostle Paul is hearing reports that when the church was gathering together and, uh, and celebrating what was called the, the Lord's Supper, this, uh, this remembering of what Christ had done for them on the cross, they were ordering themselves. They had the first-class people in the, uh, in the triclinium. They had the second-class people in the impluvium. And then everybody else was out in the courtyard. And this was the way that things were gathering. And the Apostle Paul says, look, this, this is no longer the Lord's Supper. If this is the reality when you gather together, this supper doesn't belong to the Lord anymore. It belongs to you. The, the person at the center of this is not Jesus. It is me. And so he presses up against this Corinthian church. Now, I think that we really need to hear what Paul says here. While you probably are not looking around this room or thinking about other folks that you know as second or third class people, uh, you don't have first class seating right up here and third class seating in the balcony. In fact, I think the balcony seating is probably more valuable in some contexts, but uh, that's another story altogether. We don't, we don't order ourselves by our seating, but in our society, 
But we do have an assumption about the most important person. And you know who the most important person is? Me. Not me, the pastor. I mean, each of us. Our society is not ordered by first, second, third class people. Our society is ordered with me at the middle and then everybody else. Everybody else is supposed to uh, figure out how to make me happy and fulfilled. Uh, our technology helps to reinforce this. We have the iPhone. Uh, we, we are centering our whole world around ourselves and our preferences. Uh, our society is structured such that me is at the middle. And while we might not have first, second, and third class ordering, we can run into the same kind of a problem and not even realize it. That's what I want us to look at today. Because the, the church of God, when, when we gather together, if we're going to be the church, if we're going to be the church who names Jesus, then it will require that me loses. Each of us will have to set aside me so that something else or someone else can win. Dwight Moody was uh, an evangelist during the Second Great Awakening. And in one of his little books, he tells a story about a, a group of people that were traveling on a train. The train, much like some uh, airplane or airliners today, had different divisions. There was first-class seating and second-class seating and third-class seating. This was how things were, were structured. But something interesting happened on this train. The people refused to sit in the order of their classes. They just spread out all over the train, regardless of what their ticket said. Well, the train continued on its path, and it came to a, a steep incline. And it was so steep that with a fully loaded, uh, fully loaded passengers, it couldn't make it up the incline. And so the, the train had to stop. And the conductor came out and made the announcement that everyone knew was coming. He said, first-class passengers, stay in your seats. Second-class passengers, get out and walk up the hill. We'll pick you up on the outside. We have to lose some weight. Third-class passengers, you get out and push. <laughs> now, that's a day where I don't want to be a third-class passenger pushing a train up a hill. Well, all of the people, knowing that this was coming, they all got out and they all got behind the train, and together they pushed the train up the hill. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? Because the, the church of God, that is, believers coming together saying, Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We're claiming Him as first place in our lives. And when we gather together, our time together is supposed to be a declaration that Jesus is first the church of God is supposed to work like the people on the train that day. We're not supposed to say, well, I've been here the longest, or I've given the most money, or I serve the most sacrificially. So I should get. That's not the way the church of God is supposed to work. The church of God is supposed to be a people who are saying, Jesus is first. And so I'm willing to lose even what I justly deserve. I'm willing to give it up to help this train get up the hill. And you just need to know, y'all, that the church of God in, in our context 
in a 21st century America that is increasingly abandoning any of its Judeo-Christian heritage, the church of God, if it's going to continue up the hill in this context, will only work if everybody says, I'll get out of my seat and I'll push however I can. I'll, I'll give up my, uh, my, my preferences. I'll give up what, uh, what I'm comfortable with so I can put my shoulder into this thing and as much as I'm able, I'm going to help push this thing up the hill. You see, the church of God only works in any time, in any place when the people of God say, it's just not about me. It's not about me. And the people of God begin to change the question that they even ask about themselves together. I had a powerful reminder of this a few weeks ago. I was talking with a young man who grew up in Eastern Europe in a predominantly Muslim country. He became a Christian even though his family was still uh, very Orthodox uh, Muslims and they were hostile to him as he was trying to learn how to follow Jesus. And he he tells the story of, of every Sunday he would wake up early in the morning and his dad would meet him. And his dad would try to talk him out or bully him into leaving the house that day because his dad knew where he was going. So every Sunday he had to get up early and face his father berating him for his choices. And and so the the young man would, would face that and then he would leave. He would go down and buy a bus ticket and ride in the bus about an hour and a half to, to a town about an hour and a half away because there was where the only church near him met. He, he wasn't asking the question, is it convenient for me to gather together with the people of God? He wasn't asking the question, uh, are, they, are they meeting my needs? Are they doing what I, what I like when I get there? He wasn't asking the question, uh, what are people going to think if I end up in this place versus that place? No. His, his sets of questions were remarkably different. The, the one question that drove that young man each Sunday morning to face his father and then to, to pay to go to church, and to give up his morning to go, was what can I sacrifice Jesus? What can I give up so that Jesus would be declared first in my life and declared first to everybody around me? You you see, we all, we all live under the the weight of a culture that just is pressing us to ask the question, what do you want? We're, we're, We're pressed into thinking about how things affect me. But yet, what the Apostle Paul and the Scriptures call us to is to recognize that worship, a a gathering of of Christians together in the name of Jesus, it's worship not because of me or you. It's worship because of Jesus. And what ought to be the center of worship is Jesus and what he has done so that me loses out as he rises in importance. It's it's what Paul points them to. After the section that we read, he's going to drive them straight to the antidote, to the disease of me. 
The antidote to the disease of me is to see he. And I know the grammar is bad, but hang with me. It's to see Jesus and to remember his first place. So here, what he says in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, Paul understood that the only solution to the disease of me was to see fully and to see more and more just who Jesus is and what he has done on behalf of you and me. I was speaking with a family this week, and the subject came up. And one of the ladies said, you know, I, I, I understand now. I understand now that if I was the only person on this planet, Jesus still would have come and died for me. And I said, I just wanted to affirm her. I said, you know, you're right. I mean, uh, God's love for you is that expansive that, that if you were the only person, Jesus would come and die for you. And she said, well, yes, but that's not what I meant. What, what I've come to understand is that if I were the only person on this earth, I would still need Jesus to come and die for me. I understand that my rebellion and brokenness and sin is so serious before God that the only solution, even if it was just me, is for Jesus to come. You see, when we remember Christ's death on the cross, we're remembering two realities that are central to who Jesus is and what it means for you and for me. The first is that you and me, we are far worse off than we could ever imagined. We're far worse off than we could ever imagined. The, the scope of our sin and rebellion against God requires the blood of a perfect, sinless sacrifice. You, you require the blood of a perfect sacrifice in your place for your sins. But the second reality is equally important, that you are more loved than you could ever dare to imagine, that God has willingly given Jesus and that Jesus has joyfully sacrificed himself so that you might be cleansed and forgiven and redeemed and restored and reconciled to God. This is the good news, the, the gospel that is supposed to be at the center of everything we do when we gather together in worship. Paul understood, and I think we can too, 
that the one thing that can overcome the disease of me is the expansive and perfect work of Jesus Christ. And so, when we come together, we come together and say, Jesus should be at the center. And something else happens that Paul is pointing this church to. When, when we lose me and we see him, that is Jesus, we begin to win something new. It's a new we, a new family of faith. Paul's been reminding them all along in this section that that's what's at stake here. If they will lose themselves and get their eyes on Jesus, then what they will gain is not just Jesus, but a whole new family of faith, a whole new family united under the lordship and the salvation of Jesus. And so, over and over again, he's going to remind them that this is supposed to happen when they come together. Verse 17, it's when you come together. Verse 18, when you come together as a church. Verse 20, when you come together. And then down in verse 33, when you come together to eat. And verse 34, when you gather together. You see, what Paul is driving them to is to remember that if you even want to have a we, if there's even a possibility for an antidote to the loneliness that is so pervasive in our culture and theirs, if we want to have a we, then it's going to require losing me and seeing him at the center. I've had a lot of time lately to think about what that might look like for us as a church. Y'all know we've been walking through our interim period, preparing to bring the next associate pastor for worship and music. And so I've thought a lot about our, our times that we gather together. And I just want to say to y'all that there's, there's some things that the Lord has been, been clarifying for me that I think just must be of first importance for us. The, the first is that when we gather together, the, the thing that ought to define our gathering is the, the good news of Jesus. The, the most central reality of, of our time together, worshiping Jesus, ought to be in everything that we do, from singing and prayer and, and, and preaching and, and in our moments together of, of, of speaking God's Word to one another from, God's, from the Scriptures. Everything ought to be helping us to remind one another of the story of God's Word, of what He's done in Jesus, of God as creator and ruler of this whole world and, and humanity, you and me included, as rebels who have of uh, gone our own way and rejected his rightful rule. But God in his mercy has sent Jesus to redeem and to restore. And ultimately, we now wait in hope as that redeemed people for him to finish the good work that he started. I, I want the most defining feature of our time together is that each of us are every time we gather remembering this story of creation and fall and redemption and of restoration. This is what's supposed to be at the center of all Christian worship. And, and hear me, that what needs to be at the center is the gospel of Jesus. What needs to be on our lips as we talk about our church out in our community is the gospel of Jesus. And not first, 
what kind of music we play in a particular room. I don't, I don't think that we in the future will need to define ourselves by choir-led or band-led. I, I think there's something more for us. As we say what unites us is Jesus and his story. And I'm, I'm even willing to, to lay aside some of the things that I want so that Jesus and his story can be central as we gather together. And my hope is that as we look down the road, we see a time when we are using both our legacy musical resources and our emerging musical resources together to point people to this Jesus so that we can together say when we gather, the person who matters most, it's not me, but it's Jesus Christ. And it's not my story that I'm after. It's not uh, what I need that I'm trying to prop up. But rather it is Jesus and his powerful work that is the center of our community. And I think it calls us each to a moment of self-examination. Paul tells this church that they are to examine themselves, that if they eat, if they do this corporate worship time in an unworthy manner, they are guilty of sin. And I think each of us, individually, as well as us as a church, we've got to examine ourselves. We've got to examine the question in our hearts. Are we asking, what can I sacrifice so that Jesus is central? How can I help move this train up the mountain? Are we asking, am I going to get what I want? Am I going to like what happens? Will I agree with all the decisions? You see, I think for us going forward, we're all, all of us, going to be called to sacrifice so that Jesus is the center of this community, this family of faith. And so that dozens and hundreds of people across the city and around the world will look to us and see a church of God, a church of God defined by this gospel of Jesus at its center. And a people who are saying, I'm ready to give, to sacrifice, so that Jesus can be first. What's the question in your heart? Let's pray. Father, search us. Know us. Test us and see our anxious ways. And would you lead us in the way everlasting. Pray that you would unite us, this church. Unite us around what matters most. Would you, would you use us to do what we cannot think of doing on our own. 
Father, would you provide the leaders and the servants, provide the opportunities and the calling so that what people know about us is first Jesus and his story. And you show us even today what we need to do in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, so that people will know that story because of this community. We surrender ourselves to you and ask you, Jesus, be first in our hearts, in our church. We pray this in his name. Amen.